Welcome to the Nurse Shark Academy Show, a Baxter Professional Services production. Welcome to the Nurse Shark Academy Show, where we're experts in nursing and experts in business. I'm your host, Tina Baxter. The Nurse Shark Academy Show highlights nurse business owners and others in the healthcare field who promote entrepreneurship. We interview nurse leaders and encourage them to tell their story. Join us for each episode and support these wonderful nurse entrepreneurs and leaders. Today's guest is Penny Chason. And today's episode, how one nurse with a love for helping the human condition went from nurse anesthetist to nurse hypnotist. Welcome to the Nurse Shark Academy Show. I'm Tina Baxter, your host. The Nurse Shark Academy Show highlights nurse business owners and others in the healthcare field who promote entrepreneurship. We interview nurse leaders and encourage them to tell their story. Today we have with us uh, Penny Chason. Did I say that correct? Yes, perfect. All right. Uh, welcome to the show, Penny. Hey, you know what? I'm excited to be here, Tina, because I love to empower other people. And as nurses, we do such great things when we come together. Yes, we do. I've had a great time talking to nurses from all over the country. And so tell us a little bit about yourself. Let's get started with the first and most important question that we always ask. What made you become a nurse? <laughs> Well, first, I had no idea I wanted to be a nurse. And I just had one of those fumbling moments out of high school. I got a two-year degree. I thought I might want to be an eye doctor, and that felt kind of restless. So I decided to take a year off. And I was promoted to assistant manager at a Sonic restaurant. And two weeks in, I was like, absolutely no way. I had three aunts who were nurses and one of them had been a nursing instructor. So I applied to every nursing school in the state, had no idea what I was getting into. I remember the day when they had a schedule right out of the gate, our criticals to do bed baths on each other. And I remember thinking, oh my God, what have I gotten into? <laughs> I have to bathe somebody? <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, it was really that, but what I found was, was that in my heart, I love to help people and it was just God's intervention, you know? So tell me about your aunts. Cause I'm always curious what influence did they have on you with nursing? You mentioned that you had family members. I, I just knew that they were all independent. I mean, they were married but they were independent. And when I took that year off, I had been in a relationship that wasn't that healthy. And really the main thing that I learned in that two weeks as assistant manager was that was a lot of really hard work mm -hmm. for very little pay. Mm -hmm. So what I saw in them was that they were educated. They were really sure of themselves and they absolutely knew what they were doing. I mean, they were just confident in what they did. And I saw that and saw the financial independence along with that. And I guess really that was the biggest piece. One was a dialysis nurse. One was a supervisor and had been a nursing instructor when the charity hospital and nursing school uh, had been open before they closed that. Mm -hmm. And the other one, yeah, that was, that was the three. And they just all did something different, even though they did the same thing. 
that's the beauty of being a nurse. We all do something a little bit different, even though yeah. we're all doing the same thing. Whether you're a bedside nurse on med surge, working in ICU, the pediatric nurse in the school, or a nurse entrepreneur, we're all still nurses. Right. So what was your first nursing job? My first nursing job, I took a job as a student nurse assistant when I was in nursing school and through that process got into their externship program. Mm -hmm. And I was fortunate enough that when I was in the externship program, I spent time on OBGYN and telemetry. I fell in love with cardiac. And because I had been in the hospital and had built relationships with people, I was one of the first group of four that was graduate entry into ICU. So I had some beautiful mentors and my first job was actually in a level two hospital in a uh, combined ICU, CCU. Wow. And so that kind of gave you your love for cardiac. What was it about cardiac nursing that introduced that intrigued you out of curiosity? (laughs) I love the EKG. I'm a little nerdy. You know, I'm not a computer programmer or a coder or anything like that, but I'm a little nerdy. And one of the LPNs would often sit and monitor tech at night. I worked the night shift. And as a student, she taught me about the EKG and arrhythmias. And I just soaked it up like a sponge. And I enjoyed that. And through its natural progression, after about a year and a half, I took a travel assignment ended up meeting my husband in New England, complete fluke that wasn't in the plans. (laughs) And the first permanent job that I took there was in the cardiothoracic ICU at Hartford Hospital. And to just see a beating heart like that, you know, um, because, you know, I I mean, it was a highly acute facility. And so we just did things that you normally don't see. And I remember watching an episode of ER and my mother going, that doesn't happen. I said, oh, oh, mom, they they have really good consultants on this show because, yes, things like that do. They, they do happen. And I just loved the I don't want to say predictability of it, but cardiac is something that, you know, you have the EKG, you have your electrolytes, you understand how the heart pumps the blood and the blood pressure and the relation between all of those things. It just filled my love of learning. But And that's important, right? And I heard you say that you had your aunts as mentors and an LPN that was your mentor in cardiac. Let's talk a little bit about that, how that power of that, um, um, motivation that you got from those mentors in your life? How has that impacted you? Just the way that you see things and how, especially in nursing, when you find a, a, a real, there are a lot of great mentors out there, but you know, we all have our own personalities. We connect with people differently. And when you find that mentor that you really connect with and you have the benefit of that wisdom and that experience, it it really shifts because in nursing, it is such a dynamic where, I mean, it's absolutely true. We see people at their best 
and we see people at their worst. And to have someone who can give you that perspective, I, I'm getting chill bumps head to toe right now because it, it, this translates into what I do now. To have a deep understanding of the human condition and to have that compassion and that understanding for where someone's coming from, uh, that applies in how you deal with patients and their families. And not only that, but how you get to choose to show up as a professional, especially when we in turn get to mentor those coming up behind us. And it gives us a perspective that's much deeper and broader than what we grew up with. That's true. I, it's having those mentors in your life to guide you and to give you that perspective. I, I also had a sort of similar uh, experience where I was a nurse tech on the unit. And it was the nurses that brought me alongside and said, hey, I'm doing something cool here. Come watch this. Um, yes. I remember as a high school student, I had the opportunity to work in the lab. And when I worked in the lab, I was in the summer program. They would come get us and say, hey, we're going we're to do an autopsy today. Want to come down to pathology? And I'm like, sure, <laughs> because I wanted to know how things worked. Yeah. Yeah. Fortunately, when I did my ANP classes, there was a shortage of animals for dissection that year. So I didn't have to get into all of that. I, I'm very much an animal lover. I don't know how I would have handled it. <laughs> now, see, I'm a biology major. So <laughs> I had a, major, yeah. a, a degree in biology. So I was used to dissecting a lot of different things. I'm sure. Uh, so the autopsy did not bother me one little bit. Well, when we had to do a baby, it kind of bothered me. But, you know, yeah. um, it was really cool to see some things. Uh, one of the cool things was you shake their hand and when you raise their arm, it kind of the muscles contract and kind of squeezes your hand like they're shaking your hand. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I, I have to say probably other than my three aunts on my dad's side of the family, on my mother's side of the family, there were no health care. Like there, mm -hmm. there, there was not even really any exposure to significant illness until my grandparents became sick just a few years ago. And one day my uncle, he, he was always so funny. He was like Santa, but his hair wasn't white. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, he was always a joker. And when Christmas, gosh, I guess it was the second Christmas when I was a nurse, he asked me, he said, what do you do when you get these dirty old men and they want to reach out and, you know, kind of pinch or, or whatever. And I just kind of laughed and I said, pillow therapy. And I mean, it, you know, it's, it, it was a joke. My mother was just like appalled. And I said, mom, I said, it's, it's just humor. Number one, I would never harm anybody, but when you deal with large degrees of illness mm -hmm. and suffering, you you kind of have to have a way to let off a, a little bit of a little bit of steam. But that that wasn't met very well by my mother who was not in healthcare, had no exposure to it. <laughs> no exposure to the morbid gallows humor that we in healthcare yeah. sometimes indulge yes. in. Yes. Yes. I thought it was really funny after we got done dissecting in the lab, 
we would always go to lunch. It was like we were starving <laughs> and we would sit there, you know, me and my uh, friends, and we sit there, we're eating lunch. We're just talking about what we did in, in lab and everything. And the people around us would just get white as ghosts. And they're like, can you please stop talking about that? We're trying to eat. And we're looking at them like, what? We would eat in the lab, but no food's allowed in there. What are you talking about? Because we're just yeah. so used to it. Yeah, my husband's a nurse and it was the same thing. And when my youngest was about four or five years old, he would look at us and say, no talking about body parts at the dinner table. <laughs> we're like, okay. Okay. Well, you know, my husband would ask me, how was your day? He's an engineer. He's not in healthcare. I, I sometimes I would be a little bit too graphic and tell them exactly how my day went. Well, the poop went here, the pee went there, the blood shot up there. You know? Yeah. Now, I don't, you're still practicing. I'm not. But what I found the last, even though I worked in the OR the last 15 years and in the last three of that in a level one trauma center where you just saw everything. Um, since I, since I stepped out of healthcare in terms of patient care, I am not able to have those discussions anymore. And my husband will start and I'm like, please, do we have to do do that while I'm eating. So my my insensitivity or decreased sensitivity to that has definitely shifted. I can understand that. I can understand that. So working in cardiac care and, and from your bio, you've been in cardiac care and anesthesia as well. So yes. how did you go from that to open up your own practice? And hypnosis, where did that transition yeah. come in? Yeah, that's that's a little bit of a story. So my first anesthesia job was in the eastern part of the state of Connecticut, a little hospital called William W. Backus. And I'm going to give them a shout out because even back then they had something called the Chi Center, the Center for Healthcare Integration. So periodically I would get patients coming into the OR who had read the book, Peggy Huddleston's Prepare for Surgery, Heal Faster, mm -hmm. or they had Reiki or healing touch before they came into the OR. And at first I thought it was a little weird, you know, the Peggy Huddleston prepare for surgery, heal faster. They have a little piece of paper pinned to their hospital gown. It says, read these statements three times as you put me under anesthesia. And then three times as, you know, I wake up from anesthesia. And people would ask for things like, you know, I'm hungry for a strawberry. I empty my bladder. I'm wide awake. Like it would be simple things like that. Mm -hmm. I noticed that they were much more calm. It took less anesthesia to put them under. They took less pain medication, which means they woke up faster and they were able to go home more quickly and they were still comfortable, but it was because they didn't have um, all of the medications in their system. So that kind of piqued my interest. And then we had um, in the community there were a couple of episodes that became very public within the Connecticut health system because I, I don't know how it is where you are, but in the state of Connecticut, like all of the anesthesiologists are malpractice insured under one umbrella group. So if something happens uh, in one place, everyone becomes immediately aware. And there had been a patient who had had a procedure in, in the recovery room at whatever hospital it was they had been administered some dilaudid and they were comfortable. They met their Aldrete scores. They were discharged to the floor. But when they got to the floor without all the beeping and the buzzing of the alarms, 
they became somnolent and then they became agitated. Now, mm -hmm. when you're in ICU or you're a very experienced nurse or you're in anesthesia, you recognize that can be a hypoxic response. But this patient also had a history of alcohol abuse. Ooh. So the reflex response was to call the hospitalist and get Ativan. Mm -hmm. So the combination of the Ativan and the Dilaudid, it was not a positive outcome. It was a sentinel event. And I remember thinking to myself, you know, I learned so much as pain about pain, training to be a nurse anesthetist that I never learned in nursing school or at the bedside. What if I was able to bring these caveats together so that people could practice at a much higher level, have their patients be more comfortable and be safe at the same time. So I decided I was gonna form a continuing education company. And I created a uh, pain management program that was a day long. And when I did the research on the complementary and alternative therapies, I came across the medical research on hypnosis. And there is a boatload of medical research on hypnosis. And I was like, my God, what is this? And it took me about four years to find a training I actually wanted to attend because as I mentioned earlier, I'm a little nerdy. I wanna know how things work. Right. And there is no professional education required to become a hypnotist. So I wanted to find someone to train with so I could really understand what's happening and not just the generics of hypnosis itself. The program was taught by a retired nurse anesthetist, so I was getting my 40 CEUs for anesthesia. I had no expectation of becoming a hypnotist. The, I think there were 12, 14 people, all but two were nurse anesthetists in this group training. In the fourth, fifth day, he called up a volunteer me. And it was the day that he was demonstrating glove analgesia. Now, some of the people who are listening may not know if you've never worked in the OR or labor and delivery, you may not know what an Alice clamp is. But I had seen the video on his website where he induces hypnosis, gives analgesia by suggestion, and he clamped an Alice clamp shut on the back of this woman's hand. So wow. when he called me up, I already knew what he was going to do. And I was like, okay, trust him. The man's an expert. Just follow his instructions. So I didn't overthink it. I allowed him to guide me into hypnosis. He numbed up my hand with his words. And he clamped an Alice clamp shut on the back of my hand. So tight, in fact, that the mark was there two and a half hours later. Wow. I, it was like being at the dentist. I knew it was touching me. It did not hurt, did not feel a thing. And that day I walked out going, I don't know how, but people need to know that they can have control over how their body feels. And that was, that was it. That was the moment. That's amazing. And that made me think, man, I need to take you in for when I go to the dentist. <laughs> there, there are people who specialize in dental hypnosis. I never did dental hypnosis. It's the same concept, yes. but it's very, it's very common. I worked, uh, worked. I have a colleague that when she lived in Dallas, she actually had a contact with the dentist and he and his hygienist would send her people all the time. 
That'd be wonderful because, uh, yeah. yeah, I'm I when I go to the dentist, sad to say, my dentist usually gives me an injection after numbing me topically and then gives me gas <laughs> and yeah. relaxes me completely and then put headphones on me <laughs> so that I can't yeah. hear the drill if I have if they have to do a filling or replace the old filling or something like that. The drill yeah. just makes my anxiety go up so i can imagine someone going into surgery and having a similar experience um because i kind of do that when i go to school into surgery and yeah. i'm going under anesthesia and i give them my instructions when i yeah. wake up make uh, no sure you no offense to them i i i've worked with many wonderful anesthesiologists but you how the healthcare community is, right? When we go in for a procedure, we ask one of our peers to take care of our family members or whatever. Uh, one day, my chief anesthesiologist came in. He goes, um, my wife wants to talk to you. I'm like, okay. Like, I didn't think anything of it. And I called her and she's like, she knew I was a hypnotist. She had experienced hypnosis. She said, I'm coming in for a procedure and I want you to give my anesthesia and it really miffed the other partners, right? Because they thought, sure, with it being a physician's wife, another physician, and basically all, you know, she just wanted relaxing words. Yep. She just wanted relaxing words as she went off to sleep because she believed in that and she wanted someone who would honor that um, for her. So, yeah. I can imagine they were a little ticked off. <laughs> But I guess my question is, why aren't the physicians taking this? I mean, I have an opinion or a perspective uh, around the whole notion around hypnosis and healthcare. The first of all, in my experience talking with other hypnotists who have therapy backgrounds, psychiatry backgrounds, hypnosis is taught as a footnote. Unless you happen to be in a center where there are psychiatrists or neuroscientists who are actually studying hypnosis, like uh, there's David Spiegel out in California, Mark Jensen, I believe he's in Florida. There are a lot more who do the research. But when you look at hypnosis from the more classical approach and not from a stage hypnosis approach, right. the induction into hypnosis, you know, for some people, they do 10, 15, 20 minute inductions. When I first became a hypnotist and I would do that, I would have clients fall asleep in the chair. I'm like, there's got to be a better way. Mm -hmm. you, you can actually get someone deep enough into hypnosis to produce that glove analgesia I talked about in two and a half to three minutes. It oh, wow. really doesn't take that long if someone's prepared, but a huge piece of it is the time factor. And when you're talking about using suggestion as uh, in, in every person being individual, the key component to getting someone to um, allow themselves to be guided into hypnosis, you have to do a really good pre-talk. I mean, if you've watched uh, TV, the movies, Hypnosis gets a bad rep in the yep. way that it's, uh, you know, th the glamorous way that it's portrayed on TV. That is the number one barrier to going into hypnosis. Is someone having a fear 
that they may not even realize they have because they've seen something in the back of their mind. They're going, oh, that's that's not good. It's losing control. It's giving somebody power over me, things like that. So it's like, time it's time intensive. And I think that's why they don't do it. It's not taught. There's not that deeper understanding. And, you know, doctors, especially now with protocols and standards and processes, they want to know the evidence is there. Boom, boom, boom. And so I think it's a combination of those two things. So sounds like one, they need to do more research with hypnosis. And, and I mean, you know, we need more clinical studies so that they will feel comfortable and add it to their curriculum, particularly if you're going to be, yeah. I think, an anesthesiologist or a therapist that might be helpful. Yeah, yeah. I think it needs to be added to the curriculum. There's a ton of research. They're just not exposed to it in school. And as a nurse, I wasn't either. Uh, Dr. David Spiegel has actually created an app called the Reveri app. And it's something that they're testing out in California in terms of giving patients access. Because I did some research last year. If we were to provide brief hypnosis for relaxation and just general suggestions to comfort, get this, only to women having breast biopsies, whether it's a needle biopsy or a surgical biopsy. That population alone, based on the statistics that I found, and I looked at if half of these women said yes, and then you had the standard 80% efficacy rate, it saved the healthcare industry over a billion dollars for one procedure, one procedure. And you know what? And maybe there's pop culture has done a really big disservice when you're talking about things that are non-pharmaceutical. <laughs> uh, I was just thinking about the movie Get Out. If you've not seen that, that, that was a movie that. about uh, a young African-American gentleman who drinks the tea and is hypnotized. And now he goes into the sunken place and another person takes over his body. I mean, we have yeah. that those references um, in right. pop culture all the time. And so I think you're right. There is a lot of misunderstanding um, of what hypnosis can do and how it can be beneficial in healthcare. So yeah. what are you currently working on now? Because you mentioned uh, that you're not practicing clinically um, as a nurse anesthetist, but now you're doing more hypnosis. So initially when I ducked out of anesthesia, I had just written a book called The Fibro Code, where I documented several clients that I worked with for confidence, for motivation, they wanted to sleep better. But through that process, uh, fibromyalgia disappeared. Uh, one of my clients was on disability for bilateral osteoarthritis in the knees. The third session, we did some forgiveness work, anger, creates so much disease in our bodies. When she came in for a fourth session, she didn't have her walking stick. And I'm like, what's up with this? She goes, my knee pain is gone, gone. And that was for working with confidence. So initially, my plan had been to build out a program to help people with fibromyalgia. And what I found that next level rewarding was that when people are on a personal development journey, when they just simply realize that I can be better, 
life can be better. I can think healthy about myself. I can love myself. And then the trickle down effect that has on our mental, emotional, and physical health. That's what I do now. I work with highly successful people, motivated people, driven people to have that true confidence inside of themselves to be at peace with themselves. And then that allows them in whatever work that they do to go out and have an even greater positive impact. Um, I do still once in a while, will take someone on dealing with a physical issue. I just took on a client in February pro bono for permission to write up her story because her father um, pays for her to travel halfway around the world to get alternative treatments that are not available to her here in the U.S. And wow. she has gone from bed bound to walking. And mm -hmm. it's just been amazing. And the work that I did with her was to eliminate her fear of falling because as she began to get better and she was learning to walk again, she had this really intense fear of falling because she had a huge history of falls. Definitely. And we wrote that up. That went into the National Guild of Hypnotists Journal of Hypnotism in June. I wrote up a brief case study and have a video over on YouTube. Uh, to those of us who are in healthcare, we notice the difference more so than someone who is not in the field to know the impact of the subtle changes, but she had idiopathic or has idiopathic cerebellar ataxia. So I still do those things once in a while. That's great. That's great. And so um, when you started your business and you started out on your own, what were some of the obstacles that you had as a business owner? Because it's different when you're working for a hospital mm -hmm. or a clinic or you know, you're your employee. But now that you're the business owner, what were some of those initial obstacles? Yeah, so the initial obstacle, because I started part-time, I was building the business while I was still working, was not having any clue what in the world I was doing, right? I didn't know anyone who was an entrepreneur. I knew other hypnotists who ran practices. And the advice was, oh, just throw everything at the wall and see what sticks. Well, when you don't have funds or cash, or you don't want to take out a loan to figure those things out, that means things are a little bit slow. And you're doing a lot of things yourself. And about nine, 10 months in, I reached out to another hypnotist. She had been a software engineer and left that to become a hypnotist. Oh, wow. um, and I reached, she's very successful. And I reached out to her. I'm like, hey, you know, do, do you, can you point me in the right direction? Do you have any advice? And she said, you know, she sent me a very nice video, spent four or five minutes talking me through what I was asking. She said, but you would really benefit from a business coach. So if you're, even if you're starting a side hustle, what I would do is be very discerning. In other words, don't hire the first person you meet, but be very discerning and find someone who is in a similar field of what you want to do, whether it's affiliate marketing or multi-level marketing or a practice uh, like I have, find someone who's done it before. They've worked out the kinks and they can help you to avoid the mistakes. That's number one. The second okay. biggest struggle. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I was gonna say, that's, that's great advice right there. 
is save time by finding people around you that can help you get to where you want to go. Yeah. Don't get business advice from your family members. Your fr- they don't get it. Yeah. If they've never run a business, I mean, they, they love you, but they, do, they don't get it. And when I left to go full time, the biggest, uh, the biggest thing to get over was going from knowing that paycheck was showing up every two weeks to learning to deal with the natural ebbs and flows and cash flow until you build up that baseline of revenue. I mean, it's truly like riding the Superman coaster at Six Flags. That is a Six Flags, right? <laughs> Not even sure. But um, I mean, that was my stomach. It was like doing whoop de doos on the highway as a kid, you know, and eventually that, that evened out. And it's just because mentally from a belief standpoint, our mind doesn't have evidence that Mm -hmm. the money's going to come in consistently. Whereas when you had a job, you knew that check, if you, as long as you showed up and punched in, the check was going to show up. Yes. That's a big transition. That's a big transition for every entrepreneur is Mm -hmm. going from that. I have that safety net insurance, uh, PTO paid time off so I can take off and still get paid. When you're an entrepreneur, particularly a solopreneur, Mm -hmm. you may not have that unless you build it into your business model. Yeah. When you're, when you're brand new to it, you're. There we go. I hung up for just a second, but her name's Natalie Bullen. She's amazing. And uh, she said, people think you left your nine to five, right? To have it easy when you left your nine to five to go to 24 seven, because in the beginning, that's, that's what it feels like. I mean, for a little while there, I was definitely making less than minimum wage when you looked at the time you put into building your business and people don't see that people just see what you're charging. Right. And they're like, Oh, you charge that much for an hour. Well, it took me 10 hours worth of work to get you through the door. <laughs> so, <laughs> yes. so, so, so that's, that's for 11 hours of work. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> that's getting everything prepared for you. You know, I, I yes, I get the similar well, when I, you know, as a business coach, it's like, well, but you see, there's things that I do on the back end before I even meet with yeah. you. And, and there's, yeah, and there's the marketing yep, and everything that goes into it. Uh, people don't magically show up. It would be nice if they did, but they don't. Wouldn't it be great? Hang out your shingle and <laughs> business just comes in. <laughs> but that's why I have this show, because I think so many people don't know the different things that nurses can do. Nurses don't know how they can become business owners. And I thought it'd be great to have other nurses come and tell their story. So thank you. Yeah. Yeah. You're, you're welcome in in terms of like with, with hypnosis. Nurses can implement that a lot of ways because there are people who specialize in hypnobirthing. You Ooh. could specialize in pain if you're, you know, maybe you work with uh, a psychiatrist or a psychiatric nurse practitioner in on referral 
if they are referred and the provider deems that it's appropriate, you can work with people who deal with anxiety and phobias and all of these different things. So there's there's a lot of flexibility with hypnosis as an option for sure. And being a nurse automatically increases your credibility for referrals. Now that sounds great and wonderful. So I'm going to ask you, is there one last piece of advice that you would give a budding entrepreneur? What would you tell them? This is something that I see often or, or saw often in my business that uh, my clientele, it's shifted out of that. But if you're deciding to go into entrepreneurship, it can feel exciting and wild and crazy and, invig and invigorating to just maybe quit your nine to five and go into your nurse entrepreneur role, whatever that may be. It still may be healthcare related. Make sure you have that financial bridge. If that financial bridge is not there, it puts immediate downward pressure on you to perform. And that downward pressure will lead to making decisions out of, oh my God, I have to make ends meet instead of this is the next best step for my business. It's, it's making sure you don't enter into that uh, spirit of desperation. Exactly. And that's where you can make uh, wrong decisions like uh, accepting a partnership with someone that maybe you, you should not be in business with. Um, yeah. And maybe accepting a client that you know you really don't want them to be your client and they end up being a problem for you later on. That can, that can be a huge one. I learned in 2020 a really big lesson and I actually had to let a client go. And, but the energy shift in my business when I let that client go was so dramatic. I signed three clients in their place within like a week and a half. There you go. Right? Yeah. But you have to get out of that fear. And with yes. that downward pressure creates that fear. Yes. Yes. Well, if, if any of our listeners want to work with you, um, how do they get a hold of you? And I understand that you also have a promotion. Uh, yeah, so probably the easiest way to catch up with me is on Instagram, at penny.chason, DM me. I always have a lot of different things going on. I may or may not be doing another training this year. I'm thinking that's part of my business. It's going to be phasing out, but you never can tell. And yes, I do have a freebie. I have two of my most classic hypnosis audios that people rave about uh, a couple of years. I finally, there was a nurse practitioner in Connecticut. I just sent her the direct links because I used back in the day I would burn CDs and she mm -hmm. would periodically reach out to me and want to buy CDs that she would give to her patients because she loved these two hypnosis audios. So I finally sent her the links. I said, just give your patients the links and just let them download them <laughs> because I'm not burning CDs anymore. So you can get that at pennychason.com forward slash relax. Well, thank you. That's very generous of you. Um, and that, again, is pennychason.com. Relax. Yes. All right. 
Well, that ends today's show. I want to thank you for coming on. And thank you to everyone that is listening. Uh, please, if you're watching us on YouTube, don't forget to subscribe and leave us a comment. And if uh, you are listening to the show um, via podcast audio, go to Podbean and you can get our podcast wherever you get your podcast from uh, Apple, Spotify, wherever. And as always, uh, tune into the Nurse Shark Academy show and share and like our content as well as we always take referrals. So if you know of a nurse and a, a nurse business owner, let us know. And then we'll be happy to have that person on our show as well. Don't forget to check out the nursesharkacademy.biz where you can also uh, get uh, in contact with our coaches. Thank you and have a great rest of your day and enjoy. Thanks for listening. Attention nurses, looking to take your nursing knowledge and turn it into a viable business? Ready to take action, but don't know where to start? Join the Nurse Shark Academy. We support nurses as business owners and leaders. We offer career and entrepreneurial coaching for nurses or other healthcare professionals. Whether you're a brand new nurse, a seasoned health professional, or building a startup, join a community of support. Entrepreneurship can be lonely, but it doesn't have to be. Our career and business coaching services are designed to help you achieve the life or balance you desire. Our experienced coaches will help you identify and attain your career and business goals, enabling you to become more successful in both your personal and professional life. I'm Tina Baxter. I founded the Nurse Shark Academy because I believe every nurse is a hero on his or her own epic journey. Nurses are launching new businesses every day. You don't have to do it alone. Join the Nurse Shark Academy and get the support, training, and coaching that you need to launch your successful nurse business. Become a member at the NurseSharkAcademy.biz. Thank you for listening to the Nurse Shark Academy show wherever you get your podcasts or watching us on YouTube. Don't forget to like and subscribe and don't forget to hit the notification bell so that you'll know when all of our episodes come out. If you want further information, you can contact us on the NurseSharkAcademy.biz.